Have you ever made a promise that you struggled to keep? How about a commitment to God? Or maybe even a commitment to your church that you would do something or serve or be involved in a study that you just really struggled with following through with. All of us have been there. Praise the Lord, that's why we experience grace. But do you ever get tired of not being able to follow through on the commitments that you make? Hi, I'm Pastor Rusty Gunther from First Baptist Church of Blowing Rock, and I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. In today's message, the children of Israel get tired of being known as people that can't keep their commitments. They had just been having a great prayer meeting, a great revival in Nehemiah chapter 9, but during that prayer they were reminded that their history was a history of broken promises. So here in Nehemiah chapter 10, which is number 17 in our Nehemiah series, Repair, Rebuild, and Restore, they're going to do something about it. They're going to make commitments that last. So I hope you enjoy this service. I hope you enjoy this message. Uh, The title, The Difference Between Making and Keeping. It was recorded on June the 30th, 2013, in our 930 service. So let's join it in progress. The difference between making and keeping. God's people said, amen, hallelujah. Young, have a seat. I want that song sung at my funeral. Uh, you don't even have to sing it. You can just read it or say it uh, because I'll be celebrating how great he really is for the first time. And so what a powerful, powerful hymn. 
Uh, it is good to be back. I appreciate you letting me be gone on vacation and uh, time with my family. Uh, if you notice on the blue sheet, we're about to run out of room of people having babies down here at the bottom. Uh, I guess that's a good problem to have, one that we put on there that some of you may not recognize, Jennifer Gray Thompson. Jennifer was our uh, children's worker for uh, almost four years here, uh, now works at a children's home, married, had her first child, and we're so excited about her uh, having Bella yesterday and, and excited about uh, the others as well, and the Greens to have theirs here today. So uh, you can tell it's their fifth child. Uh, we have others that have already had their children. And uh, matter of fact, we've got several that had children four and five weeks ago, and they still hadn't brought them to church yet. The Greens, your fifth child, it doesn't matter. I saw them pass them around the hall. Uh, fifth children, you know, that's just where you stand. If you have a Bible or you're on your blue sheet, turn to Nehemiah. We're going to continue in our series. Uh, we took a little break while I was out of town. Uh, our series, Repair, Rebuild, and Restore. Just look, walking through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, this is the 17th message in that series. Uh, some of you that know me know I'm a huge fan of the old Seinfeld TV series. Uh, I like Seinfeld. I enjoyed watching it when it was on. I enjoy the reruns. I have some on the DVDs. I, my wife thinks it's ridiculous that I have a head full of useless knowledge about a show about nothing. And so uh, that's, that's just one of my uh, shows, and it's kind of my sense of humor. And uh, one of my favorite episodes, and it was on again while we were on vacation, and my son and I were watching it on reruns, uh, Jerry. Seinfeld, the main character, goes to an airport to pick up a car he had rented. And as he's standing at the counter to rent the car, uh, he explains who he is and gives him his name and says, I need to pick up this car that I've reserved. And she begins to go through it and say, well, uh, we don't have that car available. And he said, but I made a reservation. She said, well, I understand you made a reservation. We don't have that car. He said, no, maybe you don't understand. He said, a reservation means simply that uh, you have the car here. And she said, you don't have to tell me. I know what reservation is. He said, no, I'm afraid you don't. He said, you know how to take a reservation. You know, anybody can just take reservations. He said, you know, or make reservations. Anybody can just make reservations. But without the keeping of the reservation, it doesn't really matter. He said, don't you understand? It's the keeping of the reservation that makes the whole concept work. And and as you watch that and you think about that, that's so true in every area of our lives. That that it's one thing to make a promise. It's one thing to make a commitment. It's one thing to, to say that we'll do something. But if we don't follow through, if we don't keep that promise, if we don't keep that commitment, then really the making of it didn't really matter. And you see, what I want to suggest is uh, that's exactly What's at issue in many of our lives and many Christians in the church's lives today? I, I've got several friends that are pastors and in talking to them and reading things online, I'm coming to recognize that one of the greatest struggles in the church today is people not keeping their commitments, not keeping the promises that they make, not living up to, to the vows that they make. Uh, we will have people in church that come and they'll make a commitment to, to come and be a part, to, to come and support the church, to come and be a part of a ministry team. They'll sign up to work in a class, sign up to volunteer somewhere, sign up to teach, uh, sign up to go be a part of a Bible study or a small group, sign up to pray, uh, sign up to do all sorts of things. 
make spiritual commitments every week. We come and we, we, we commit to God that we're going to pray more. We commit to God that we're going to witness more, that our lives are going to change, that uh, we're going to make a commitment in our homes and our work ethic, and uh, we're going to practice more forgiveness, more grace. We talk about watching our tongues, but when the time comes to keep those commitments, we struggle with it. Well, I know we make all kinds of excuses. We're busy. We overextend. We've overcommitted. Life gets in the way. All of these kinds of excuses. But in reality, the issue, the gap between making a commitment and keeping a commitment is a hard issue. It's a matter of priority. See, it's really easy to say that we'll do something. But it's not easy to continue and to keep that promise that we make. So what I want you to understand this morning, uh, as we look at the idea of keeping our commitments, is that God takes keeping our commitments very seriously. You see, I, I think in our society, we've overlooked it so much. We've given so many excuses that we've made it kind of okay parents promise to their kids and then don't fulfill we have our kids promise or commit to be a part of a team to be a part of a group to be a part of an organization and they get involved and they don't like it and so we tell them just quit there's no idea of commitment there many of us we join something we get involved in something and instead of seeing it through we decide we can just stop we can just quit and so that's become the norm instead of living up to the commitments that we make living up to the vows that we make and that crosses over from our regular life into our spiritual life and so many of us in here we go week to week making commitments to god making promises to god making commitments to ourselves that we never fulfill and what happens is the more commitments we make that we do not fulfill, the less committed we become in every area. That's what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. For you better guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. For he is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. For when you make a vow to God, listen to this, when you make a commitment to God, when you make a promise to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. For he has no pleasure in fools fulfilling their vows. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. That's some serious language. To not make a vow, a commitment, or to make a promise and to break it is to be a fool. Do you realize, as I said just a moment ago, When we sing these songs, those in and of themselves are declarations of commitment. See, some of us say, well, I don't make any commitments, so it's easier for me not to to break commitments. Well, I don't know what's scarier, to make a commitment and break it or to not be committed to anything at all. The old adage says, if you don't shoot for anything, you'll get there quickly. You see, when we come in here and sing some of these songs, we are making a declaration. I'll stand. I'll offer you everything that I have. I surrender all. I have decided to follow Jesus. We sing these songs and we don't recognize that what we're doing in those songs are declaring to God, this is a commitment of my heart. And sadly, many of those commitments are broken before we even leave the door. See, God takes it serious. And if you've been in our study of Nehemiah for this past semester, you understand the children of Israel knew all about making commitments and breaking commitments. 
making vows, making promises, and breaking those vows. And as a result of their breaking these commitments, we've seen that God left them to their own devices. God left them to the consequences of the decisions they made instead of fulfilling their vows. And they were almost wiped off the face of the earth. And as we walk through Nehemiah, we've seen for the last hundred years the children of Israel that were in Babylonian captivity and now are in Persian, really, captivity are allowed to go back to their nation that was almost wiped out and to begin to try to rebuild. In our study in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah comes with a vision as the governor of Jerusalem to restore the city. And we spent a lot of time early in the series talking about rebuilding the walls and the opposition he faced. But now as we get to the end of the chapter, we realize that the whole goal was not really just to rebuild the walls. The whole goal was spiritual restoration. You see, what Nehemiah knew is you can build the greatest structures in the world, but if your heart's not right with God, none of that matters. And so Nehemiah takes a twist in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and he brings Ezra along and they begin to experience this incredible revival. Revival simply means a reigniting of your heart in a relationship to God. It's a spiritual renewal. And the children of Israel, as they read God's word in chapter 8, they get convicted that they're not living up to the commitments that they made. And, and it says they get broken and there is repentance. And we saw there were, from repentance, God forgave them, which he is always going to do. Understand this morning, some of you so beat up because of your past actions. First John tells us that if you confess to God, he is faithful and just to forgive you. And cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You see, they recognized that when they asked forgiveness, God brought forgiveness. And it said they experienced a joy like they'd never had for a hundred years. And as they experienced this revival, it says they worshipped. You can go and read in chapter 8. They go listen online to, the, to our website, to those messages. They, they raised their hands. They got on their face. They alternated between shouting amen and crying. It was an incredible spiritual revival. And what happens is always happens as you experience God firsthand and you begin to have an encounter with him. They were driven to prayer. And in chapter 9, we see what many consider to be the greatest prayer meeting in the Old Testament. They begin as they gather around. I told you about this uh, antiphonal prayer where Levites were on that side and Levites were on this side. And one group, you can read through chapter 9, they would say, We disappointed and and we walked away from God and the other side would shout, but God forgave us and we tried again. And it was an incredible time of prayer. And it was during this time of prayer that God began to move them. And that's what brings us to our passage today. You see, they were so moved, so driven by this spiritual renewal that they wanted to do something. They wanted to make some changes in their life. You see, I want you to hear me. There are many in this room that could use some spiritual renewal this morning. You could use what the the Israelites have already experienced, this fire back in your spirit. Some of you have lost it. Some of you, it's been weeks and months and years, and you recognize that something's not there. You need to understand the first step to spiritual renewal is to admit you've missed it. Your time with God is not the same, and it's not God that walked away. It's you. You see, they are experiencing this fire, something that they haven't experienced in their lifetime. And it drives them to our passage here at the end of chapter 9. Uh, we're going to look at chapter 10 as well, but I want you to see what happens. The end of chapter 9, uh, verse 38. 
in view of all this, and what does that mean? That means because of the revival, because of all that God's done, because of all the promises that, that they made to God, that they failed to keep over the years, we are making a binding agreement, a vow. That binding agreement word there in the Hebrew is the same word used in Ecclesiastes for vow that we read earlier. We are making an agreement and putting it in writing. Now, this is important. What they're saying is we're not just going to say again in our heart, God, I promise. We're not just going to say as a group of people, yeah, we're going to try to get it right this time. They said we, we are so serious about doing what God's called us to do. We're going to write it down in front of everybody and have people come and sign it to say we agree this is important. And then he begins to tell who's going to sign it. Our Levites and the priest will affix their seals to it. You see, they'd had this intimate encounter with God. And what I want you to understand is that an intimate encounter with God will always lead to life change. See, the greatest evidence that you've encountered God is your life will be different. The Bible is full of those stories. Isaiah, sitting in the temple, encounters God and he's changed David at the brook, he encounters God and he's changed. Moses at the burning bush, he encounters God and he's changed. Paul on the road to Damascus, he encounters God and he's changed. You see, you need to understand that the sign of someone who has had a deeply, intimately, life-changing salvation experience with God is their life always changes. Now, I argue with my friends, they'll tell me, oh, but some people's life doesn't change. You know, uh, you, know you can give some examples. That, that's not true. I can't find it in the Bible. Now, I know some changes take place in the heart. Some are not as quick, but there is always a change. There is always an exchange of old for new. This idea that you can have an encounter with the living Savior, that you can experience grace and mercy and forgiveness and unconditional love and not be changed is not biblical. Now, you can walk away from it, but your life will be changed for the worst. But your life has changed nonetheless. You see, if you, if you say, I've had an encounter, but my life hasn't changed, you didn't have an encounter with God. You had a religious, emotional experience, and they're not the same. And sadly, in many churches, they're selling religious, emotional experiences and patting people on the back and saying, that's good enough. Well, I want to share with you this morning, it's not good enough. Because a religious emotional experience won't bring you forgiveness. It won't bring you grace. It won't bring you salvation. And if that's all you've had, then you need to get on your knees this morning and cry out to a loving, just, holy God to change your life. You see, they had an experience. They had an encounter. And an encounter always drives you to want to change. You see, in our text here, they, they'd been changed and they just didn't want empty prayers anymore. They didn't just want empty promises. They were tired of making promises they couldn't keep. They were determined this time these commitments would be made public, written down, so that there would be accountability. They were determined that this time would be different, that their lives would be changed. Let me ask you, have you ever had a place in your life where you've hammered it down to say, look, I am committed to all that God has for me? where you publicly let those around you know for accountability's sake, for witness' sake. That's what they're doing. Now, I understand we live in the new covenant. This is the old covenant. We walk on a different side of the cross. But these commitments that they make here are still very relevant to you and I. 
They're still life-changing for us because as Christians, as we pursue sanctification and the Holy Spirit begins to change us, each one of these promises, each one of these vows will change your life if you'll commit to it. And so I want to take just a few minutes to look at the three vows. There's really three main vows that they make, three main promises. And I want you to see them for a few minutes this morning and ask yourself, have you made these commitments? And if you have, are you keeping them? Because it's easy for us in church to get emotionally involved and say, I'm making that commitment. But the difference is, are you keeping them? Because you see, what they wanted to do to make sure they were going to keep them is they publicly proclaimed them to those around now, if you've got your Bible, chapter 10, uh, we're going to skip over the first 27 verses because all that is is the names of the people that signed the sheet. They made a vow that they were going to do something different. This time they were going to keep it. They laid it out there. Nehemiah started off the group in chapter 10, verse 1, and then the Levites came, and then the leaders came, and then all the rest of the people came, and then we got down to the normal people. So let's look uh, chapter 10, verses 27, 28. Or really, I'm sorry, 28, 29. It says, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the neighboring people for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand, all these now join their brothers and nobles and binding themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all of its commands, all of its regulations and decrees of the Lord our Lord. You see, what basically it said, did, did you see it in there, the little word? said, all of those that signed it were those that separated themselves. Separated themselves. In the New Testament, the definition of someone who has been separated to be used is called holiness. Holiness, by definition, means that you are set aside for God's purposes. Set aside so that God might use you. Jesus declares to his followers, be holy as I am holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means to pursue Christ and Christ's lifestyle with everything that you have. To come out of the things of this world and not be a part of this world. To separate yourselves. You see, they made a commitment to pursue holiness. We don't talk about holiness much in church because it makes people uncomfortable. But the Bible shares that you and I were saved to be made into the image of Christ. That's holiness. Now that work, that sanctification that takes place, that's apart from your salvation. Doesn't earn you God's love. Doesn't make you saved. But what it does is it makes you more in His image as you pursue Him. And to do that, you've got to separate yourself from the things of this world. Why? Because you're no longer a part of this world. You, you need to understand that holiness dictates that you and I have become separated from the values and the principles and the systems of this world. The Bible says you and I are now aliens. We are not a part of this world. Now, that doesn't mean that we go off and live in a cave in some Christian subculture and, and, and not have anything to do with the world because we have to live in the world, but we don't have to be of the world. We're called to be light in the darkness, and you can't do that from your little subculture. But what it does mean is that we don't allow the principles and the systems and the things of this world to influence our lives, to influence our homes. We're separated from that. The values, the allures of this world and its philosophies and its compromises, they can't touch me because I'm different. Now please hear me. 
I don't understand why Christians and so many in the church are so surprised when our values that are so different are laughed at and mocked and made fun of. And the world's values are cheered, supported, and voted on. We shouldn't be surprised. The Bible clearly says this world is lost and full of sin. We've been spoiled in America because of our Christian heritage and our Christian past. Doesn't mean we should shut up. I think we should still speak for our truths and our values, but we shouldn't be surprised when people mock them and laugh at them. And it's only going to get worse. Why? Because we're not a part of this world. This world is not my home. You see, what we need to do this morning is to commit to being separated from the things of this world. Listen to what John says in 1 John. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world and the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful mind, the lust of the eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires are passing away. You see, it's easy to be popular and liked, but it's very difficult to be popular and liked and pursue holiness. You have to choose one or the other, distinction or compromise. This group said we will stand in holiness. They separated themselves. Let me just say this, and I'm almost done. Do you think when they made this promise that they thought they were going to be able to keep these promises? Do you think they were able to keep these commitments and these promises? I mean, that's the whole point of this message, taking and keeping, right? Making and keeping. Well, we know from history they didn't. Matter of fact, we know from history that it's impossible for anybody to keep up with the law. To do good, to do perfect apart from Jesus Christ. The whole reason Jesus came, to come and cover for our inabilities to live up to it. But what I want you to see, what's important, is they were so determined this time, so committed, that they were willing to make a stand. I'm asking, where are the Christians willing to make a stand for holiness? But not just for holiness. Did you hear the second thing that they said there in verse 29? That they were going to make a stand for the Word of God. You see, what they were saying is no longer were they going to go by what is popular or what the culture teaches or what everybody else says, how we should live and how we should raise our kids and how we should act. They were going to go simply by the Word of God. That this was going to be their guidebook. I wonder how many of us have made so many commitments and promises on this book that we failed to keep. You see, they were saying that there is right and wrong, that there is absolute truth, and it's found in this book. See, we don't shape this book. It shapes us. You can't just read it every week, once a week, and expect it to make a difference in your life. You can't just hear it on Sunday and expect it to make a difference in your life. You've got to dive into this love letter to see and hear God speak into your life. They said, we're determined that this is going to guide us. Not what the TV says, not what the movies project, not what popular culture says, not what the government votes on. This will be our guide. The problem these days is not that the Word of God is proven unreliable. The problem these days is that society and many religious people have proven themselves to be woefully illiterate in understanding what this book says. 
See, if you and I would begin to dig into this book, I, I've heard more misinterpretations of the Word of God this week than I think I've ever heard in my life, both sides. People trying to quote wrath, people trying to quote uh, love, and in the instance, not presenting either because they don't understand it. See, you and I have got to raise our kids understanding that this is truth. We've got to build our families around the principles that this is true. We've got to commit ourselves that this book will be our guide, even when it gets burned, even when it's not popular, even when we may stand the test of being persecuted because we have it. Say, that won't happen in America. (laughs) Times are changing. Where is the commitment to the Word of God? They committed themselves to holiness. They committed themselves to the Word of God. And in the last nine verses, they wrapped it up in saying this, that they were going to commit themselves, that God was going to be the first priority in their lives. Those last nine verses you can read. I don't have time to go through them. But basically what they said was that not only was holiness going to be important and the Word of God important, but placing God first in everyday decision, that's going to be a priority. And they list three areas. They said God was going to be first in their homes. He was going to be first in their marriages. He was going to be first in raising their kids. He was going to be a priority. Their homes were going to be a place of refuge. They said God is going to be first in our businesses, in the way that we interact with other people. You see, it's not about just keeping God at home. I I don't understand these people that say, well, I'm a Christian, but when I go to my work, I leave my Christian walk at home. You can't. Because it's not something you take off and you put on. These politicians that say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't allow that Christianity to influence my life. Then, Then how can you be a Christian? Because that Christianity influences everything I do and say. I can't stop it. And if I could, then the Bible says the Holy Spirit would speak out of me. You see, everything that they do, they said, in the home, we're going to make it Christian, centered around God. In, in our workplaces, when we play sports, when we're at school, in our business ethic, we're going to make God central. And the last thing they say, and I can just read it to you, it's at the end of the chapter, we will not neglect the house of God. See, their homes are going to be a priority. Their, their interactions with other people are going to be a priority. And last but not least... Church was going to be a priority. Worship was going to be a priority. They were going to be committed to gathering together and worshiping and serving. That they were going to raise their kids with the understanding that that God's word and God's house was important. Now let me just ask you this. They were serious. How serious are you about holiness? about the Word of God, about making God first in your home, in your business, in your play, and in worship. Vance Havner, a famous North Carolina pastor, said, most of the people in church today live so far behind their commitments that they would have to backslide to be in fellowship. Think about that. I had to think about it too. See, the people in Nehemiah's day took these vows seriously because they wanted to be wholehearted in their commitment. See, they just read through chapter 9 when the, the whole testimony was, God told us to do this, we said okay, then we disobeyed. God told us to do this, and we said okay, and then we backed out. 
And they finally came to a point where they said, I'm tired of that being my testimony. I'm tired of people knowing me as being the one that makes a promise, gives up the promise, makes a commitment, gives up the commitment. They said, this time it's going to be different. And you see, what I'm asking church is, is it going to be different for you? Are you willing to make a commitment to God to say, this time I'm tired of just making promises I want to keep these promises. You see, the beautiful thing about it is, for us, that's different than the Israelites, is we have the Holy Spirit that empowers and leads and helps us make these commitments. But to the Holy Spirit to lead us, you have to step out. You have to lead. And there was a church business meeting, or prayer meeting, I'm sorry, about the same thing, business meeting, prayer meeting. There was a church prayer meeting. This older man came to every time they had prayer meeting, and he would sit over in the corner, and as they would pray, they prayed, unlike some churches do, they, they prayed where everybody had a chance to pray. And as they were praying around the room, this older man every week would pray the same thing, and he would pray it very loud. He would say, Lord, get the cobwebs out of my life. And he would do it over and over again. Someone else would pray something, and he would say, Lord, get the cobwebs out of my life every week. Week in and week out. Finally, there was another gentleman in the prayer meeting. He had had enough. And he went over and sat by this older gentleman. And just like he had week in and week out for the last several months, as prayer started, this older gentleman said, Lord, get the cobwebs out of my life. And the man next to him stood up and put his arms on his shoulders and said, God, don't just get rid of the cobwebs. Kill that stinking spider. (laughs) See, that's the way we live our lives. God, I want to promise. God, I want to commit. But we never follow through. This morning, God's looking for some people willing to stand in a world where Christians and church religious people are backing away, looking for people to stand in their homes, to stand for holiness, to stand for the Word of God. When you have a real encounter with God, your life always changes. What about you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that we could gather together in the body of Christ and pray and seek your heart this morning. Father, I believe there's some who need to make commitments to you, not to me, uh, to you. The Father, some that have backed away on their promises in the past, that have made vows to spouses, vows to children, vows to to church, vows to you that, that they haven't kept. And their words have become empty. Father, let us say enough. Let us say this morning, my word will be my word. I commit to holiness, to the word of God and to putting you first. God, thank you for each person that's here. Bless them as they do business with you. Bless them as they hear your Holy Spirit's voice this morning. And as they're challenged by your touch, in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and worship. The altars will be open if you want to pray. For most of us, let's just sing this song and recognize the power of Christ to change. Would you worship with us?
借。